Greetings, my dear audience here in the United States and around the world. I'm Peter Resnick and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. I want to thank all those of you who send emails to me. In fact, uh, one of you um, ladies sent me a suggestion uh, because she heard me say last Tuesday that that evening I was to go and teach a course weight control, body image, and relationship with food issues. And she suggested, why don't you teach classes on this subject here uh, to the listeners of the PRN? So I have a suggestion to you, ladies and gentlemen. If you, some of more of you, uh, are interested in me addressing this subject, I will be happy to do it next week. I want to remind those of you who would like to write to me, my email is uh, Dr. Peter Resnick at gmail.com. D R P E T E R R E Z N I K at gmail.com. And as always, before I go to the main subject of today, I want to remind you of what we did last week um, on July 6th and what we'll do next week. Last Tuesday, I discussed with the audience uh, the ethical principles of Lakota Nation and their relevance to our life today, as well as the similarity, uh, with the, the similarity with the ethical principles of the Western spiritual traditions. I also spoke about the issue of living in doubt versus following your intuition. If you missed the talk, you can find it on the archives of PRN. Um, the next week, We'll talk about, the, as I said, either on weight control and relationship with food issues, or I will talk about um, how to address depression in a natural way, not through medication. By the way, I did not give up on our big subject, the six pillars of well-being. Uh, we'll still, we're still on the fifth pillar, your conscious beliefs, attitudes, and character traits. So far we covered, I believe, guilt, judgment, ingratitude, uh, jealousy, and doubt. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, we still have to cover worry, expectations, arrogance, anger, greed, apathy, and I think something, and um Vanity and denial, right? But it's still ahead of us. And as I said, I skip, maybe I do it, I address one issue every three, four weeks. I will leave it up to you uh, with these issues first come, first serve. If you ask me to talk about one particular issue of those that I listed, I will be happy to start with those. But today, ladies and gentlemen, I have a very special guest. And before I introduce the guest, I want to make sure that I keep my promise to you regarding the WIT, Will Integration Training, the series of 12 exercises designed to strengthen your will, willpower. During the last five shows, I already gave you the first five assignments. Today, I'm giving you the assignment number six. Those of you who decided to follow the exercises, uh, here is the exercise for the following week make a commitment that right after this show, remember we start from two o'clock 
or from three o'clock in the afternoon till the next week. So right at 3 p.m. the whole week, anytime you're walking through any doorway or an arch, mentally say to yourself, passing through. And this exercise is, of course, to dehibitate you uh, from acting without full awareness of what you're doing. So, but remember, you're still practicing the first assignment where I, I asked you to say, I choose with whatever choices you make. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, my guest, he's a mountain climber and uh, a bodybuilder. He's a serious yoga practitioner and an avid reader, reading an average three books a week. But ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you, these accomplishments of his are very impressive to me personally, but that's not why I invited him today to be with us. In addition to what I told you about this gentleman, he is also an accomplished physician, a surgeon, and a writer, and he wrote an incredible, incredible book, uh, Butchered by Healthcare. That's a book written by a physician, which I just finished reading yesterday. And I believe everyone would benefit from reading this book. And this is why I'm so excited to have him on this show. Dr. Robert Jocha, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, Robert. Thank, thank you so much, Peter, for your kind words. I, I'm actually 67 now, so I'm doing uh, no more mountain climbing and exercising a little bit, hardly bodybuilding. And, uh, you know, you have to accept your limitations. Your body is less robust as you get older. But but I, I put that stuff on my CV because I'm proud of it. Okay. And you know, we're, we're the same age, but you look at least 10 years younger than me. So I'm very... Well, that's very kind. <laughs> now, Dr. Joch, I want to tell, tell you something. In the last 20 years, I came across only three books which... Uh, took an honest look at what's going on in healthcare in America. The first book was published in the year 2000, How to Get Out of the Hospital Alive, by Dr. <laughs> I believe Blau, uh, Sheldon Blau, who almost died after undergoing surgery, not from the surgery, but from the infection that he got while being in the hospital. Then in 2004, Dr. Uh, he, he's not a physician, I believe he's a naturopathic doctor. Joel Wallach wrote a book, Dead Doctors Don't Die. Apparently, uh, an average American, at least at two th in 2004, lived till the age of 79 or 70, <coughs> excuse me, or 78. And an average physician at the year 2004, lived till the age of 67. So that's why he wrote the book, Dead Doctors Don't Lie. And he wrote about the failures of uh, Western medicine and American medicine in particular. And finally, the third book that I read uh, was written by my nephew in 2006, Dr. Um, Oleg Resnik, uh, Secrets of Medical Decision-Making, where he spoke about many, many mistakes that doctors make and, and how many decisions that I made by the doctors are not really 
keeping the, as a main focus well-being of a patient. Uh, by the way, uh, soon, within six months after publishing that book, he had to relocate and, and lost his job in the hospital in Oregon. So, I believe, Robert, I believe honestly that your book, Witchered by Healthcare, is the most powerful testimony of the inadequacy of the American healthcare and the most comprehensive reference book for those who are seeking medical assistance. I would like our listeners to get to know, before we talk about the book, and I have many questions to you about it, and also if we can, we'll talk about your latest book on, on hormone therapy. But before I, we talk about it, I would like people to, know, to get to know Robert Yoho the men, why you made choices that you made in life and how, what choices you're making now in your personal health care and how you stay so young and handsome. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Peter. All right. So when I was, I, <clears throat> I had an interesting career. I started out as uh, an emergency physician and I transitioned, um, into cosmetic surgery. And the last 35 years I did cosmetic surgery. And, you know, it was, I was modestly successful. I mean, I did breast augmentation and body contouring and facial work, but um, it ultimately it was like being Rip Van Winkle. I went to sleep for 35 years and didn't look at regular medicine. And at the end of that uh, time period, when I was 61, uh, remember I'm 67 now, I had two patients die in my clinic over a six-month period. It was a shock, I, uh, you know. I, needless to say, and basically, most cosmetic surgeons have a patient or two die in their career during their surgery, of their surgery, or coincidentally during, you know. Um, so I, I knew it wasn't unheard of, but uh, you never think it's going to happen to you. So. Uh, you can read about the circumstances in my first chapter of my book, but um, that's sort of beside the point. It pushed me into introspection about medicine, and I started to read widely and generally. And I found uh, this was, you know, 2013 or 14. I found that uh, over the last 15 to 20 years, the whole system had gone downhill, and I began to think of it in terms of corruption. And I eventually, you know, I started characterizing it to myself as corruption. And I eventually found over 100 references that described areas of the problem. There were references about psychiatry. There were references about the mathemat mathematics of healthcare that made it all look like a sham. There were references about cardiovascular surgery. And, um, uh, you know, there were so I. I put it all together and started to synthesize it. And for whatever reason, I sort of had an obsessive compulsive attack that lasted through over three years that that in which I put this book together and wrote it down to the point where most people could understand it uh, reasonably well. I got it down to about 11th grade level, which is not easy for this kind of material to explain it to the you know, to virtually anyone certainly a well-educated person can uh, get it pretty, pretty easily. So, I, I mean, I just, um, 
you know, I, I developed some rules that I think would be helpful for your, your readers um, to think about when they think about, when they read about science or medicine. And the first rule is that um, those are the gold make the rules. So learning the source of funding often explains everything, right? And then once you understand that, you understand that many things that you hear are sales pitches. And since you are as smart as any story, storyteller, or at least in the same league, don't let anyone fool you. And this, of, of course, applies to financial advisors and lawyers as well. You don't have to be an academic to judge complicated data. In fact, learning too much detail often will obscure the truth. And the third thing, which is not obvious to everyone, which became obvious to me after several years of study, is that controversy or confusion or contradictory evidence about small numbers proves that whatever it is does not work. It doesn't prove that it's controversial. It does, these, these medical subjects are studied so exhaustively that if there's controversy, that means it's a coin flip. You might as well forget about this subject because it's not true. Don't fall into the trap of believing that reasonable people disagree or that science is developing. Just follow the money. So, um, so anyway, so I, I, I went down this rabbit hole and I'm happy to answer questions about any of it. I think with an hour, we probably ought to leave most of hormone therapy to another session, if that's okay with you. I have done very well. I've been on hormone therapy for uh, 20 years and I think that's the reason why, personally, yeah. Yeah, and the testosterone therapy, and it makes it makes a huge difference. It improves your alertness, and I'm gonna plug it in for one second, and then we can drop it if you don't mind. Um, Alzheimer's disease is currently treated with a variety of toxic and ineffective drugs that not even the people who sell them can claim that they really work. They, they just, if they work, it's very subtle, and it falls into that uh, category three, small numbers. Don't believe it, in my opinion. So um, hormone therapy prevents Alzheimer's in studies up to 50 to 80% of the time if started in women at the time of menopause, right? So this, this uh, hormone book, it's got over 500 references as links in the ebook. But in this particular uh, subject, I wanted to document it. So I made an appendix uh, and I put 75 references proving what I say about estrogen, estrogen therapy in women. And men need estrogen too. And if they take testosterone, testosterone gets broken down to estrogen and that prevents Alzheimer's in a large case, number of cases too. So uh, testosterone preserves your alertness. It preserves your physicality. It pre preserves your sexuality. It does a lot of positive things. So, but that's enough of hormones because we've got a lot of things to cover and I'm sure you're interested in a lot more. Would you, would you please share with the audience how, how you got the the courage to do it. You know, I, I know Peter Bregan, I know Larry, uh, uh, Gary Knoll. In, in the, this environment now, particularly now, and it's been happening more and more uh, in the last probably 15, 20 years that the doctors really have more, uh, uh, a lot to lose. Yeah, got I've got an advantage, okay. I resigned my medical license and I retired. So I know I have no conflict of interest and you may, if as the people on your podcast and you dive into this uh, literature and the 50 or 100 books specifically addressing medical corruption that are very good, very well referenced, exhaustive, and I reference them in my book. 
you're going to notice that most of those people are retired. I mean, there's a well-known New England Journal medicine editor, um, Marcia Angel, if I have that pronounced, but she didn't speak up until after she quit. She had a wonderful 15 or 20 year run as the chief editor of, at the New England Journal of Medicine. Same thing with the British Medical Journal editors. But I'm retired. I don't have a horse in the in the game. And as long as I remain free of libel, and of course anyone can sue you, but all my stuff is derivative. It's all exhaustively referenced. So I don't know. In California, we've got slap suits that we can we can uh, uh, institute against people who hassle us for no reason. So uh, I, I don't think I've libeled anybody. I think it's all absolutely true. You know, I remember when, when Oleg wrote his book, some of his superiors in the hospital accused him in in what what in Russian we say sweeping the dust out of the house. And it's a very interesting ex expression. In Russian, it's it's powerful. It it means you show your oh, oh in English you have dirty laundry showing dirty laundry. Right, right. right. In Russian, it's sweeping the dust out of the house. When Solzhenitsyn wrote his books about right. uh, atrocities in the Soviet Union, yeah. and they accused him sweeping the dust out of the house, he said the the guilty one is not the one who sweeps the dust out of the house, but the one who messes in the house. And and that's but not everyone has the courage to speak up. Well, yes, Peter, it's our duty as physicians to to do this. And uh, you know, so you're welcome to call me Robert. I'm no longer consider myself uh, in a, a member of the tribe. I'm I'm outside looking in, which allows me a great deal more freedom. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. So uh, let me ask you a question. You know, remember this is a toolbox. So I, I, I want to ask if we can use for specific tools. For example, what criteria should an average person keep in mind following choose in choosing a physician? What do they have to remember? Okay. Now there there's a couple of tools that we have we didn't have two years ago, which are wonderful. First of all, um, Trump put through an executive order that says that consultations or even medical care can be done virtually, even on the first visit. That's a national thing. I don't think Biden's reversed that. It wouldn't make any sense for him to do it. So you can consult for a small price. You can consult for cash with the top physicians in the land. And so if you have an unusual problem, um, you, uh, you, you can go, you can fly yourself through your internet connections to Stanford or Harvard or wherever you want and see what they have to say. And they'll often look at all your labs and everything else and uh, and, and check that out. So that's, that's an important thing. But as far as your local doctor and so on and so forth, I, I mean, my book, it sounds cynical. It sounds, uh, it sounds uh, like I've given up on the whole system. And in fact, what I say is you almost need physicians expertise to navigate the system these days. And uh, my, my wife has a chronic disease and I've done that for her, I watch it. Um, but uh, you need to establish rapport. You, ideally, you get a referral from someone who knows. If you know another physician, get a referral from them. If you, you don't go to the hospitals to get physician referrals because they're they're political. But you, you need to find someone who's um, not a stuffed shirt, in certain cases, you don't want to impose too many of your own opinions on them. You just 
be respectful. And the main the main principle is that healthcare has a great deal to offer. My you know my reading and so on. There's a very robust finding that in America we not only spend twice as much per person on healthcare as the other developed countries. Twice as much. It's incredible. Almost 20% of our GDP as opposed to 10. But our healthcare is only 50% effective, and that's not it's academically incontrovertible. It absolutely is true, and it's well known that certain fields are almost entirely hokum. Uh, and certain uh, things, which I detail in in my book, you can read about that, or we can go over some examples. Do you want to give some examples? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay, so of the specialty fields, okay, so psychiatry is kind of unique. Psychiatry has a large group of people, some people call them psychiatry deniers, and this includes people besides Scientologists. Now, the Scientologists somehow got this right, in my opinion, but who believe that psychiatrists' treatments are almost entirely meritless. And I'm mainly talking about the drugs here. I don't want to make a judgment on therapy or human relationships. Obviously, much of that is has a great deal of merit. But the drugs are unique in medicine in that they never were subjected to double-blind, placebo-controlled trials. It's outrageous. They were never, by the time they got around to testing these things, they tested them against each other. The judgments about the therapy were made by psychiatrists' subjective opinions. And you probably understand, Peter, that there is no objective test about any diagnosis in psychiatry. There's no physical test. There's no x-ray. There's no blood test. So the whole thing is soap bubbles. And I became convinced uh, after after reading about the statistics and uh, and so on that uh, that the the, the uh, psychiatric drugs were almost not only ineffective but they were deleterious to our patients. And in fact, and some people claim this is coincidental, but our social support uh, systems, the number of people on disability and SSI and all that, that has climbed in tandem with increased psychiatric drug use. And many of us think this is causal. In other words, the reason for it is the drug use made these people chronic. You may understand perfectly well that almost any psychiatric condition waxes and wanes, right? They get better and they get worse. Even the completely crazy ones, the psychotic ones, they have months, sometimes years of lucidity in between episodes. Well, the psych drugs turn these people into addicts, and they are essentially crazy all the time. And the same thing with anxiety drugs. I mean, the anxiety drugs are mild, low-level um, uh, treatments compared to the antipsychotics, which have problems and side effects and shorten lifespan due to the medical problems they induce. They short The atypical antipsychotics shorten lifespan by an average of 10 to 20 years. It's well known, but they're passed out like jelly beans. It's an outrageous thing. The SSRIs, the antidepressants, those were basically very, their efficaciousness was very, very slender. Maybe they're justified for the sickest ones, but we have 15 or 20% of the entire populace on psychiatric medications now. It's, it's, the stimulants are another outrageous story. I mean, all the kids are taking stimulants. The, a third of the kids at the Ivy League schools are are taking stimulants, have have uh, uh, have either been exposed to them through their friends or have actual, um, you know, and they're given all, anyway, it just goes on and on. But psychiatry is the biggest mess in medicine. 
Second after that, I mean, I can ramble on about this if you want, or you can probe me if you want, Peter. So tell me what you want. It's, it's, it was quite shocking. I read about this in, in your book. It was quite shocking when you wrote, and it's the first time I actually read something like this, and I'm, you, you reference it quite well, that there are actually no double-blind placebo-controlled studies about the efficacy of these drugs. That's that's Whitaker's data, and he he is kind of the head of the charge in the uh, psychiatry deniers. That's what they call them, psychiatry deniers. You you know, and those people you say you call completely crazy. I I don't know if you're familiar with the name Dr. William Blesser. Um, um, unfortunately, he, he is no longer alive. Uh, he developed uh, first what was called a reality therapy, and then choice theory. And he believes, and that was his experience, that even uh, paranoid schizophrenics still make a choice to go into a psychotic episode because they need to escape the pain. Or as, as uh, Carl Jung said in the beginning of 20th century, neurosis, psychosis are always a substitute for legitimate suffering. And so the, the role of the psychiatry or psychology is to help a person suffering, not to numb the pain with medication. So, and, and, and I agree with you so much that now it's just shoving these medications in people's mouths and then, <laughs> but it's all finances, it's much cheaper. The, the idea that we should abolish suffering is the idea that we should abolish growth because suffering produces the most rapid growth. And the idea that, that we should cover this up with these toxic, side effect ridden, addictive medications is outrageous. And uh, the idea that the physicians accept all this is more outrageous. I mean, this was one of the last fields I studied and I prescribed SSRIs my whole career because you see a lot of depressed patients, no matter who you are. And I thought it was a Band-Aid. And I, you mentioned Dr. Bregan, I thought Peter Kramer was right and not Bregan. Peter Kramer wrote a book called Listening to Prozac. It was well-written. I thought the guy was credible, but he was a pharma shill, you know, whereas Bregan had been an expert witness for the people suing um, Lilly over Prozac, and he understood the inside story, which was the damn things caused suicide in a consequential number of, you know, and violence. I mean, these school shootings seem to be all associated with psych drugs. I mean, there are there are uh, um, you know there are apologists for it, but I mean I believe it, I, knowing what I know about the drugs and how the, all the problems have gotten covered up. Yeah, Peter Bragan is an incredible person. He was the first one. He spoke up. He yeah. spoke up. Forty years amazing. ago, his his book was so far out that I thought it I thought it was incredible. I thought, well, this guy's a nut, and but, I didn't realize until I started studying this four or five years ago that he was right. And Kramer was selling yeah. something, you know. I first learned about Peter Bregan when I came across his book 30 years ago, Toxic Psychiatry. That's the one. That's I read that. All right. At the, so at, at the time. I have you know, the biggest killers in the United States. Uh, uh, we know uh, cardiovascular problems, uh, cancer, and, and uh, erroneously, uh, the third one is medication as prescribed that's so right. but that's that taking medication as prescribed people will be able to read in your books uh, if you don't mind 
would you speak about the biggest traps of the cardiovascular and cancer industry and people's tips for survival? It's my yeah. talk about it uh, in, in your book, but I would like to hear it. And, and Well, it's my view that you've just named the two most corrupted specialties after psychiatry. And the cancer, the, the, the oncologists, they well over half of their income is from retailing cancer medications. Now, you're probably aware that if I sold a physician a drug or one physician sells another physician a drug and they give them 25% of it back as a sales commission, that's called capping. It's a federal crime. Those guys go to jail for 10 years, right? But there's an exception. Pharma has somehow generated an exception and they don't talk about it. The oncologists know all about it. Most everybody doesn't know about it, but the oncologists are more purchased than any other specialty in my view, because their income is 60 or 70% from retailing chemo drugs and the percent is around a quarter. It's, it's outrageous. And you know how much these things cost now. They're 100, sometimes $200,000 a year. So they are incentivized to prescribe the expensive pharma drugs, whether they work or not. Now you say, well, a physician, surely they've got medical ethics. They'd never do anything to hurt anyone. And I mean, you'd like to think that. And certainly the physicians themselves think that. But influence theory, which is well established in psychology, says that any exchange of money poisons the well. That small, even small gifts, such as lunches by the uh, drug company rep, they have tremendous influence on prescribing. And that's all documented with, um, you know, study. But a, an influence like 25% of your of the gross revenues for a drug. I mean, when you give a Lupron shot to suppress prostate cancer, it's a $10,000 shot. The doctor gets $2,500 for one minute of work. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. And there's a worse part of this, Peter. I'm just gonna tell you the last, the punchline. The punchline is many of these drugs are incentivized by the milligram. In other words, they're not only incentivized to use a drug, they're incentivized to use larger doses of the drug. So. You may know this, but it's it's a well-known fact that the the oncologists, their net improvement in lifespan for 90 plus percent of the cancers is two months. That's the best they do. And that probably doesn't even count the people who die from the drug. So we do have five or six, don't lose hope. And and I, I'm not telling, I'm not saying you, you shouldn't um, ever uh, trust an oncologist or, or uh, but, it just, the stuff doesn't work very well. They have tremendous conflict of interest. You have to look very, very carefully at what you're getting when you get cancer therapy and get a lot of consultations, be sure, you know, and you don't want to make the mistake of thinking that nothing works. Don't, don't, don't decide that, that uh, you want to be, you want to be friends with your acupuncturist when you have lung cancer. Maybe there's something that will help. Um, you want to go to the traditional doctors, but be skeptical, be careful, become as sophisticated as you can. And ideally you have a person by your side who has healthcare background, who watches you like a hawk and watches what they're doing like a hawk. I can address the cardiovascular stuff if you'd like. Yes, I would love you to, please. Okay, so in my view, the second most uh, difficult specialty with regard to doing ineffective work is 
the cardiovascular surgery and the cardiologists, right? Cardiovascular surgeons, the, the big the big gorilla in the room is um, coronary artery disease and atherosclerosis and heart attacks that kill you. They kill, you know, a quarter or half of the heart attacks happen. The first symptom is sudden death, right? You'd fall over and you're dead. So the question is, what do we do for this? And of course, our very innovative, courageous doctors invented this operation where they do plumbing around the blockages in the heart arteries, right? Which is technically difficult. They perfected it. Um, you know, it's expensive. It costs twenty-five dollars to $50,000. And you'd think it would work. But it turns out when it is studied and, you know, doctors, if, if, if they have other flaws, they do study their work statistically, and you can usually read honest statistics in the online or in the studies. But when you ferret out what really works, and I'm talking about survival, I'm not talking about decrease in pain, because pain avidly responds to placebo, and the biggest placebo in the world is a open heart surgery. You've got something that beat the hell out of you for uh, you know, weeks or months at a time, and surely you're gonna get a reduction in pain. But the decrease in deaths, which is really the bottom line for any treatment of a fatal disease, was is negligible for coronary artery bypass grafting, except one small subset, right? The small subset is, I, I mean, it's, it's for people that have blockage of the heart artery called the left main heart artery, and from that to the main heart arteries spring, right? Well, they do all kinds of other stuff. They do plumbing around other minor arteries. They do plumbing around three of those arteries. They, they do, um, you know, they do a lot of other stuff, but it, it doesn't help mortality. The entire benefit of the entire, the, the entire cardiovascular surgery house rests on a 20% improvement in mortality, right? 20% less deaths for this, these people who have a blockage or partial blockage in this one area, right? And so they, at five years, 80% of them are alive instead of 60% if they have that particular problem. So, I mean, it's, it's, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of, sur I mean, probably 95 plus percent of the surgeries are done for other lesions. So we know it doesn't work because the studies, I mean, we've studied hundreds of thousands of patients statistically, and it does not improve the fatality rate. Now, here's the caveat. Everything in medicine is an art, right? And you get one of these guys that's a top surgeon or a top, and you've got a young patient who's pretty sick, maybe you don't follow these rules. But the way they do it now, they operate indiscriminately on everybody they can get their hands on, you know, just essentially for the billing codes. And when it's done like that, you can almost straight, uh, you can almost state uh, without qualification that the other surgeries on the other areas of the heart don't work. But again, back to the caveat, medicine is an art, the top guys can get great results if they use good judgment. And uh, so, you've got to decide who to trust, which isn't easy. The angioplasty situation, angioplasty is the uh, opening of the little areas of closure with a wire and uh, a little balloon. And that's done by cardiologists who are not surgeons. And it's, it's billed as the safe way to do cardiovascular surgery. You know, the cardiovascular surgery, it's got a 
three to 10% death rate just due to the surgery. I mean, it's outrageous. It's very high. Now, if it worked, it'd be great, but it doesn't work very well, even for the, the areas that it's been studied to, and shown to work, right? But angioplasty, it's only got a half percent of them die for the for each procedure, something like that. I mean, it's it's smaller than that, actually, for most of them, and I'm going to tell you why. Angioplasty has only been shown to decrease the death rate, right? Now, it does decrease pain, but again, who knows? It's a big, big placebo. You get you get pain relief from back surgery uh, over the short term or inter inter intermediate term. That Anything, you can hit somebody over the head with a hammer and tell them it's a cure, and that's that'll relieve pain. Um, but um, the angioplasty only creates a decline in the death rate for one small situation, right? And that is when they have what's called an ST elevation myocardial infarction. That means a very severe heart attack, probably representing less than 5% of all heart attacks. It means you're sick as hell. It means your blood has been blocked to that artery in a consequential fashion, right? And that, that produces uh, an improvement in the mortality. But it gets worse. The improvement in the mortality, the improvement and I hope this isn't too technical, but just let me see if I can explain it in simple terms. The number needed to treat is 40 to produce a save. A save means somebody lives who would have died. So you got to treat 40 of these people with ST elevation MI, right? So that's that's a 2.5%. Well, you know, unfortunately, when, you, when you're doing angioplasty on that, somebody that's sick, 2.5% of them die as opposed to 5% when you do it on people who are not sick, right? So these guys are doing it for a lot of people who don't really have a, an indicated problem, and they do fine, but they would have done fine anyway. But when they do it on these people who do have the terrible problem, they save 2.5%, but the mortality or the death rate goes up to 2.5%. So it's a damn wash. As far as I can tell, now look, I'm not a I'm not a mathematician, but I can read this stuff over and over, and that's my understanding of it, and I explain it in detail in my cardiovascular sections of my book. So, I mean, those those two those three fields are, in my view, they're way off the track. Um, it, it, you know, and oncology in particular is an outrage, and and the there's an academic uh, oncologist it's in a California named Prasad Vinay Prasad, who's very very articulate, and he gives the numbers in a much more sophisticated fashion than I, I ever could. Um, so you can look at that reference. I have other references in my in my book. Since we're talking about cardiovascular disorders, a lot of people are taking blood pressure medication, and I didn't see you in the book you're writing much about it, except that you wrote Amladipan is one of the 10 bestsellers yeah. <laughs> medications. Okay, so, you know, there's... The Cochrane Reviews is one of the most respected sources in medicine. It's supposedly, at least until recently, it supposedly didn't allow outside uh, uh, industry funding. And they wrote meta-analyses, which means they combine a lot of studies to figure out what is really true, right? And they they have maintained, or there certainly have main there there's certainly evidence to suggest that decreasing the blood pressure under the top value of 160 and certainly 140 does not improve death rate or mortality, okay? So you may be aware that they're talking about much, much lower standards that 
require more drugs, you know, of course, more sales and drugs, and have many more side effects. I mean, simple side effects like fainting because the blood pressure goes too low, or the toxic side effects of the medications. Um, so um, that's a that's a brief introduction to um, uh, blood pressure problems. I the standards are outrageous, like every many other fields in. Um, um, big pharma, they have a diagnosis creep. And so they're making the standards for this stuff more and more uh, serious. So if you have a blood pressure of 140 systolic, they want to treat you to get it down to 136. And it's it, there's no evidence that it works. In other words, it doesn't work. It just sells more drugs. And probably over one under 160, it doesn't make any difference. But I mean, that's more, there's more iffy. But if you're if you're 70 years old and they're trying to give you a bunch of drugs to bring your blood pressure, systolic blood pressure under 160, it's probably crazy. But again, back up, caveat, there's an art of medicine. The great doctors can almost smell what might help you, and it's worth a try and you, you know, to see what, what it is. So anyway, that's that's my quick take on blood pressure. Thank you. You know, you mentioned as by passing to by talking about uh, cancer, and you said, of course, you look for a good doctor. You don't do chiropractic work uh, if you have cancer. So, so my question to you is, uh, you know, at what uh, for 15 years I was a staff member of the Shakti Center for Complementary Medicine, and we worked with a lot of cancer patients, and we had an acupuncturist and a chiropractor. They were part of the team, and in fact, they were very effective, not curing cancer, but strengthening the immune system. And so, I, I wanted to hear your opinion on alternative, uh, or what they call uh, com complementary approaches. And, and but in fact, the word alternative is kind of a funny word because uh, what they call alternative these days, in truth. It's not alternative. Uh, I'm not talking about chiropractic, but um, mind-body approaches are, in fact, traditional, thousands of years old, uh, herbal uh, medicine. It's really very ancient. And Western medicine is an alternative to traditional approach to medicine. So my question to you, do you have some approaches that you would recommend to people over others? Okay, so let me answer this first with a story. I have a friend in Phoenix where alternative medicine is very strong. He's a physician who manages an oncology or a cancer group. And I thought the guy was a total fraud. He had all these, you know, alternative people in there and they were doing this and that. And they used what's called homeopathy, which means diluting a drug down to the point where there's no active ingredient, essentially. Um, but as I studied cancer therapy, I realized that 90% of what we do is probably shouldn't be done at all. And the trouble is deciding exactly where to go and, and what where, where to take the risks and what are the risk benefits. And so I, I became more um, sanguine about alternative approaches to cancer because the thing that they do do is they keep patients away from toxic standard therapies that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and are completely useless. So that's the advantage of them. But I, I've got to say, I'm not an alternative physician. I, I want to quote um, um, Goldacre, right, who wrote a book called Bad Pharma. 
And he said that because there's troubles with aircraft design, that doesn't mean that magic carpets fly. <laughs> so so I, it's a caveat emptor situation. You can sell anything for pain relief. Endpoints in cancer are particularly difficult to, um, to decipher. Um, really, the mortality or the death rate is the only reliable endpoint. They're using all these, quote, surrogate endpoints for the studies, like tumor shrinkage and, uh, you know, subjective rating scales and things like that. But those don't really tell you anything statistically because they're not, you know, you don't, who cares if your tumor is shrinking if you die of something else? I mean, prostate camp cancer is a good example. Prostate cancer is treated with testosterone blockers, namely Lupron, which we mentioned earlier. Well, Lupron decreases the death rate from prostate cancer by one third, right? Now that sounds like a great number, but the problem is it probably increases the death rate from all other causes more than that. So it, you know, again, this is an art of medicine area. And if I had prostate cancer and it was aggressive, I'd consider taking a testosterone blocker or something else. Um, but, um, done the way we do it, the Lupron probably kills more people than it helps, or at least is a break even at best. The way we do it with all comers, you know, in other words, they all get it. Anyone with metastatic prostate cancer gets Lupron or another one of the testosterone blockers. So, I mean, it's hard to understand the math. It's, you have to sort of ferret these things out and study it a little bit if you have a problem like this or have somebody at your side who, who can help and uh, make some decisions for you. Thank you. You know, our, our nation, in fact, most West nations are becoming more nations with a larger, older population. So there is a whole new field now, now meaning in the last 30 years, um, emerging, uh, such as gerontology. And there are different approaches to keeping people healthy. I don't like to say the word young because like I, I, I'm 67 like you. I don't want to be, I, I want to be age appropriate. I want to be active. I, I exercise and I do what, what you do, you know, we discussed it <laughs> when we spoke actually on the phone, uh, you know, to keep myself in shape, but I, I want to be my age. Uh, but what, what can people do now, the first question is, what are the traps? What is uh, big pharma or, or medical doctors are recommending that people should stay away from as they're aging? And what would you recommend that they would put their energy into? Well, I, you know, there's a whole, the whole sep separate subject on hormone therapy. And just to outline that in very brief fashion, um, hormones are the bioidentical hormones are the same components as your human body. They actually have qualitatively better responses than any drug that pharma manufactures and sticks in your body from outside, right? These things have well-known functions. We have known about most of them for nearly a century. They've all been in common use for at least 50 years. Thyroid has been in common use for over 100 years. We know an awful lot about the endocrine system, and these things can be used to improve 
your responses when you age, and they can also be used to even treat certain diseases, like, for example, breast cancer treatment with testosterone. It's It works very well. I mean, it. so so that's, um, that's one approach to um, aging. A second important concept is that you, sh you mustn't have the philosophy that you can run to the doctor and cure any problem. The technology is going to save you because w the only thing that protects us as we age really is philosophy. It's not medical care. You have to understand that your the process is natural, that your friends are going to die, that you 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 want to uh, fight the good fight and use the reasonable things, but you have to learn to say no, and you have to study. The whole thing's gotten so complicated that you've got to study a, a work such as mine to sort of get a feel for what might be reasonable and what isn't. And you have to remember that half of it is reasonable. Half of it is reasonable. And staying in a first world country where you have access to a, a modern medical center can save your 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 backside. I mean, it, they even have these crazy procedures they do for certain kinds of strokes where they remove the uh, blood clot. And a friend of mine was in a remote area. He's 67 too. He just, he just had a massive stroke. And if he was at UCLA Medical Center, when it happened, or visiting me at my house, he probably would be functional now, and now he can't talk and his left arm doesn't work. You know, this is four months later, you know. So so medical care has utility, but you need to study it, and ideally, you dig the well before you're thirsty. Get interested in this stuff, learn a little bit about it, and then when inevitably you, you encounter the uh, uh, problems you get as you age, you'll be able to make rational decisions or your, your loved ones will help you. Uh, one more question. Uh, again, the, the, the book that you wrote is such a good manual for people. I would suggest anybody who, who found that they have any condition, they first go to your reference book and see what is real and what is focus, you know, focus and so on. But so it, it, it's a it's a wonderful reference book. But kind of it was depressing to read it. It's yeah. very depressing. It's very yeah. depressing. Yeah. So my my question to you uh, is: There hope for American and or Western healthcare? Okay. So I I think. You know, for the system, it, it's it is a mess, and there are things that we could do immediately that would clean up large swaths of it. But the 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 way we have it, you know, with the way we have our ourselves represented, it's a little like Noah's Ark, right? We have two two animals of every kind as quote stakeholders. A stakeholder might be two lawyers, right, who want to preserve their ability to profit from medical malpractice, right? Whether that's reasonable or not, I mean, we can leave that for another day. Um, there'll be the nurses who want high wages and they want staffing ratios that are very good. There, there'll be the doctors who want to be able to bill without limit. And then, of course, there's people from big pharma. Now, I'm going to make the most controversial statement of my podcast here, but it, it's backed by Wikipedia, right? Big pharma is the most corrupt industry in history, as measured by their criminal settlements with federal prosecutors, okay? And all you have to do is Google settlements, big pharma, Wikipedia, and you can see a list 
almost every one of the top 10 companies are on that list. I think it's nine out of the 10, and I don't know why they missed one. Um, but they they have a, a, a fascinating history of, of uh, corruption that dates back uh, 50 years, 40, 50 years. But the last 20 years, they've gotten more entitled. And the last year, there has it, been a stunning uh, come out of the closet time for for these guys. They'll they essentially do whatever they want. They realize they can get with it whatever they want because their worldwide revenues are 1.3 trillion dollars. Now I'm on a little bit of a roll here, so forgive me, Peter. I'm going to give you another um, another statistic. Okay, so we have coming up on four trillion dollars worth of healthcare expenditures in America. Okay, what do you think the size of the whole federal government is? It's less. It's less. So how are how are the federal government going to control communities uh, like this that, that outweigh them? They're they're huge gorillas. Um, they they have no prayer of regulating. The FDA is it has a better reputation for regulating pharma pharma than any other agency in the world. But it's got a five billion dollar budget and is trying to regulate something that in America alone is over half a trillion. I mean, it's crazy. They can't possibly do it. And their their ability to do it was taken away from them um, in the in 2003 or whatever, when when there was a, a law signed into into effect that said that we can't that Medicare can't bill. Um, they can't negotiate for the drug prices. They they were forced to bill 1.3 percent. One, I'm sorry, one. 1.3 times or 1.2 times roughly the wholesale prices. This allowed pharma to price fix. So that's why that's that 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 bill is sort of the uh, inception of the pharma disaster, where where they just are making so much money that they can't be controlled. They and they they're they're essentially amoral. They they don't they're not companies aren't trained like physicians. The physicians have been trained and they can be bought, but they, in theory, have doctor-patient relationships. They're regulated by, you know, uh, medical boards, and they've got malpractice lawyers after them. So they, they, have, to, they have to try to uh, maintain some sort of ethical presence. But these, these uh, companies are not like that. They, they are, uh, they're just, they are, they're out to reward their shareholders, and that makes sense on a certain level, but it, it produces a lot of behavior that we would consider uh, out of the spectrum of uh, ethical or legal, and certainly the federal prosecutors have considered it that way. They they settle billions of dollars of suit of uh, of criminal lawsuits every year. It's it's just fantastic. There's well, a new bigger one. Go ahead. I said I said do what do you see any hope? Okay. <laughs> the way so you are, the the things that would work. Go ahead. We have only like two three minutes left. Okay. You 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 are Robert. Yoho, the president of the United States. What do you do? Well, the president has a lot less power than you think. Um, I, I think that, I mean, <laughs> gosh, the the thing that would work, the one thing that would work is taking all drugs off prescription, and that would eliminate the patent monopolies, right? So that would work. But that's, a, that's heresy for a physician to say that, and I had trouble coming around to that. Any fee for service is a conflict of interest. So I think there's a model that is reasonable. It's it's quite imperfect called Kaiser Permanente. It's on the West Coast primarily. They have the insurance and the the insurance company and the doctors and the hospitals in one entity. And in theory, they pull together to produce reasonable care. 
and reasonable standards. In practice, their reputation is is not as good as the top independent physicians in in on the West Coast. But um, they they they're uh, they're they're growing explosively because those three entities don't bill the insurance companies separately and compete yeah. for the payments. So those are two ideas. Yeah. I'm sorry, Robert. I just received a message from a little note from PRN. You have one minute left, so. I want to thank you so much, Robert, for this interview. And I, if you don't mind, I will be in touch with you and we'll maybe organize another meeting because I would love to talk to you about the, the, your next book because you are suggesting there that the hormone therapy could be much more successful in treating all the problems that we're dealing with so ineffectively. Not, not all, but it certainly is, it's, it's, they're quite effective treatments for many problems that we face of aging and, and some uh, cancers. Robert, Dr. Yocha, thank you very much. And I, I remember, I, Peter, I'm, I'm out of the military. You call me Robert. Robert, read okay. the book, Butchered by Healthcare. It's fantastic. On Amazon. Thank you very much, okay. Robert. Thank you. Bye, Peter. Bye. And I want uh, all of you to thank all of you for being with us today. And I hope you will tune in next Tuesday at two o'clock. Thank you again. And peace to all who want to live in peace.